World-renowned supply chain thought leader Dr. John Gatorna discusses the fundamental principles of outside-in, demand-driven segmentation for the pharmaceutical supply chain on this episode of the Patient-Driven Supply Network with Roddy Martin. So, John, welcome to um, this recorded web interview with you. It's really a privilege to have you. Uh, You and I have walked a long road together over 20 years, and I think what's been very interesting is um, your outside-in segmentation model, uh, which you're going to talk a little bit about today, I believe is absolutely uh, ready for the pharmaceutical industry that has to fundamentally change its operating model. So uh, welcome to the TraceLink Thought Leadership Series. Um, our CEO has given me a really great opportunity to produce almost like a 40-chapter book of the most influential people in supply chain that you would want to talk to and put them in a series of recorded webinars. Just a fantastic opportunity. So welcome. Uh, You are an auspicious member uh, in one of the leading chapters. So I'm going to hand over to you, introduce yourself, talk a little bit about the work, uh, how you got to the segmentation model. If you can, and you know, we don't talk about companies unless you absolutely can, uh, but some of the work you've done, and then we'll uh, have a fireside chat and ask each other questions. So Thanks. welcome. And uh, great to be on, and uh, amongst all the illustrious company that you've gathered for this uh, podcast series. Uh, look, uh, I'm an engineer by first degree. Uh, I started off uh, in construction and, and uh, oil and gas platforms and all sorts of things, but I got a bit sick of it after a while, and I I decided to do an MBA, and when I did my MBA um, uh, in 1974, I was very lucky to meet a a guy who came from Canada, a guy called Mark Doktoroff, um, and he was a Fulbright scholar, and he he was teaching at the university in Melbourne, and uh, he was the one that introduced me to what was called in those days physical distribution management, and uh, I got quite sort of interested in this topic and went on and did a minor thesis. And eventually I, the interest became bigger than, you know, what I was doing in engineering. And I remember going home to my wife one day and saying, look, I think I'm gonna switch over and move into this area called distribution management. Um, and uh, I think the best thing to do, rather than just go back to uh, the bottom of the, the heap again after eight or nine years of, of engineering, uh, I'm gonna go off, find a place to go and do a PhD. And, um, and, and I looked around the world, at, you know, uh, with Michigan State and Ohio State and Harvard and places, and I came across Cranfield, which appealed to me uh, in England because and that's where Stuart Whiting did his um, MSc and, you know, Martin Christopher was teaching there and so on. It appealed to me because it was a, a university that was built around, a very applied university. They did work in all sorts of stuff. It was Rolls-Royce and Aeronautics and so on. They had a good management school there. And so eventually I went there and uh, took, took my wife and two small kids and sent out on a one-way trip to the UK um, back in the late 70s. And, uh, and look, um, uh, really, we, we ended up staying five years. We could have stayed forever, but it was, it was so good. But the wonderful thing about Cranfield was that that's where I got my first inspiration about thinking about logistics. But by that time, we were starting to talk about logistics. Um, and, and very much from a marketing point of view, a customer point of view, because if you recall, Martin Christopher's title was Professor of Marketing and Logistics. That's what, that's what his title was. So the whole department was geared around that. 
I um, spent four years working on my PhD there and doing some teaching. Uh, I did a lot of work in the channel strategy area. I sort of studied the UK fast-moving uh, consumer goods industry and used that in my research. I subsequently went and spent another year at Oxford where they wanted me to, to teach there, but I decided I wouldn't. That's when we came back to Australia. We came back in the early 80s, and uh, I got back in as an academic, but that, again, uh, it wasn't... It wasn't like Granfield. It was uh, it was too too academic, and I'm a, an applied type person, and uh, so I, I broke away and decided to start my own business. And I started it in the in the mid 80s and ran it to the mid 90s for 10 years. And uh, I had clients all over the world. Um, and and really, it was it was in the late 80s that I, I decided decided to think about well, look. This logistics field is just so operational. It's, it, there's no real concepts, there's no formula, it's got no predictive capability, it's all based on experience. Um, you know, there's got to be something here better than this. Uh, because it only started in about 1967, that was the first paper that came out of Harvard. Um, and so there hadn't been a long history, to tell you the truth. And it was longer than marketing, uh, but it was not a long history. So uh, I gathered together a couple of people. I, uh, a, a colleague uh, I met, uh, Norman Sean, joined me. Uh, he came from South Africa. He had a PhD in looking at uh, the, the, the effectiveness of, of uh, companies when they try to implement strategy and, and, and the interface between strategy and culture. So that formed the first part of our alignment model. And then I had the, the marketing stuff and we also are interested in leadership. And that's how we got that original concept of uh, what we call strategic alignment. It was, it was a business concept. It wasn't uh, initially meant to be for logistics or, or supply chain. We were just trying to understand, uh, you know, what make businesses tick and, and how can businesses perform better? Uh, and can they perform better if, if the company aligns its operational strategies uh, with the marketplace and uh, can also align the internal subcultures with those strategies so that they can implement the strategies and push them into, into the marketplace. And of course, underneath all that, uh, it was all driven by, by um, uh, vision, the vision and leadership. So we started with this concept in 1989. And I'm pretty proud of the fact that, I mean, although it was sort of serendipitous a little bit, I'm pretty proud that we started back then you know, a whole 20 years before, uh, you know, design thinking and things started to, start to, started to come out and tell us that what we should be doing is, is thinking outside in. You know, we were, we were thinking about the marketplace then. And so we, we, we were aware that, you know, the whole model at that time and has been, as you know, Roddy, for a long time, um, it, it, this one size fits all because the, the, the paradox was that people were trying to find a simple, common set of processes and technologies that made life simple uh, to line up with the marketplace. But what they didn't understand was that the marketplace was made up of customers that had different buying behaviours, different expectations. The assumption with the one size fits all is that everyone's the same. So uh, we started working in the marketplace, and we started. The only there were no books about this. Uh, we started to uh, do work in New Zealand, in, in uh, back in Europe, 
Uh, we work with 3PLs, with pharmaceutical companies, industrial companies, FMCG companies, um, from the whole shooting match, and, and oil and gas companies. And, and gradually over the years, what we did is we made the concept of alignment, we filled it in and it made it more granular. And we, and we after about oh, five or six years, we could start to see some patterns and we, and we realised that there were, funnily enough, about 16 archetypes that we could see in the marketplace amongst human beings in, in terms of the way they tend to buy products and services. And we, we looked at this and we said, well, 16 is too many because the implication is that there has to be 16 supply chains hanging off them. Um, so uh, we kept looking and looking and looking and what we eventually found was, and this is all empirical work that's written in my books, the academics get pretty upset about this because they're looking for all sorts of other references, but they're not, there are no other references. You know, the, the only references are the work we did. And we, put, we wrote a few academic papers too. We did one with uh, DHL Taiwan when, uh, when Stuart was there and we did the research and fixed that up and then we, we, wrote, we converted it into an academic paper. But so, 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 John, so what, if I can just draw out a point that you made, which I think is yeah. very fundamental. You, you dissected buying behaviours, came up with 16 characteristic archetypes of those demand-driven behaviours, and yeah. then looked back at the supply chain and said, all of those behaviours, when you map them into a matrix, they represent different kinds of supply chains. Yeah, that's right. But the, the problem was that we then realised that you can't go from one to 16, you know, it's too many. And so we kept looking and what we then, and the next breakthrough was we found that, in, you know, using the, the, the sort of uh, bell-shaped curve, that four or five dominant uh, uh, segments in any given market normally uh, account for about 80% of that market, 80% of the demand. And so we went for that idea that, that, you know, four or five dominant segments would give us a good enough fit or alignment to the market to make it a lot better than what we were getting with a one size fits all. And you know, John, the one model, the one matrix that I use from your book and, and uh, I ascribe to the work that you've done, and I think it's particularly relevant to pharmaceuticals, is the one that has demand forecast accuracy and closeness to the to the customer. In other words, the relationship side, because mm -hmm. that really represents the challenge that pharmaceuticals have, is they don't have good demand forecast accuracy because patient data is difficult and it's private and it's hard to get hold of. And depending on the life cycle or the life stage of the product, it's either a new product and it's untested or it's an old mature product and it's, and it's the relationships with hospitals and doctors are established. And so of those two, uh, of all of your archetypes, that's the one that really resonates in pharmaceuticals because, you know, a hospital may see a new product but, but may not administer it because they don't have enough history with the product. Yeah. Or on the other hand, they administer products they know well because they know that they're always going to be predictable in their outcome. Well, it's a very interesting point you make, because if we jump forward to the COVID period, what we'd originally articulated was five. We said there was 
there's the collaborative supply chain, uh, the lean supply chain, the uh, campaign supply chain for projects, the agile supply chain, and the what we call the fully flexible. Now, when you look at what, what COVID has allowed me to, to think through was that actually there's a sort of, there's, there's a parallel universe in here because in the normal world, when I say normal world, volatility of 50, 60, 70% in demand, then the first four of those supply chains can, can cover it, you know, um, uh, lean and, and collaborative, uh, campaign and agile can normally cover the sort of volatility that we're seeing in, in the, what I call business as usual. The fifth supply chain, which we call fully flexible, is the one that you were just implying for the pharmaceutical, where you can, it's, it's, uh, it's absolutely designed for either a disaster recovery situation or when you're launching a completely new product that you don't know anything about, it's very labour intense and you have to get it out in the marketplace and see whether it's going to make. So, so the, 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 what I'm now sort of talking about more recently, we haven't written it because it's, it's so, sort of so recent, we're talking about the business as usual portfolio of forced supply chains that handle the, the normal world. And then this other one, uh, fully flexible, that can handle, particularly in a pharmaceutical world, the, the launches, um, uh, the campaigns, and can also be used in, you know, in, in times of extreme disruption. And, and, you know, John, one of the emerging spaces and priorities, and yes, it may be in, you know, in the initial stages of, of its life, and that's this personalized medicine or cell and gene therapy where, you know, you may be making a, a very expensive treatment for five patients or 10 patients. Now, you can't, you can't live with that model that says, we'll just make 300 days worth of inventory and spread it all around and all the patients will get. You've got to segment those 10 or 15 patients very, very carefully because there's really critical criteria around getting that product to each of those patients on time in full. And there can't be any surprises. I mean, if there's one thing that I think your segmentation model really points to, and we're going to talk about it on the Credo panel, and that is, if you've done a reasonable job at segmentation, you're likely to not get blindsided by complete surprises. There will always be surprises, but you're going to be relatively prepared for surprises. Well, you know, on that very point, this, this, is, this is the point that, that I think where the uh, alignment idea and the portfolio of supply chains has helped. If you do your, your market research, uh, supported by analytics, by the way, because we do a lot of analytics as well on, on demand patterns and we relate that to what we're hearing in the marketplace, then what it tells you is it gives you those four or five major segments uh, and could be including, as you said, that personalized medicine segment. Um, and then once you know that your market is pretty much structured that way, you can reverse engineer back and you can hardwire your business to cope with any of those four or five. So therefore, it doesn't matter where the demand comes from after that, whether it comes out of someone who's looking for a brand or someone who's looking for a low cost product or someone who's looking for something on a you know, quick response basis, you've already got inside the business hardwired the combination of processes, technology, uh, the teams, the KPIs and things. So it's just a matter of, it's like I explained, it's like having conveyors and you just, 
you're just putting different, you're putting this different products or the same product on different conveyors and they're being delivered differently to, to those customers at the other end. You don't have to then, when you get something, suddenly decide, my God, I've got to do something here. It gets rid of a lot of that reaction and therefore reduces the cost to serve. And, and I think, you know, one of the things that we're going to be talking about on that agile uh, supply chain credo for, for healthcare, which is very exciting, is that agility, resilience, and, and reliability are, are absolutely what's needed in the healthcare industry, right? So if you're always, if you're on the defense and reacting to disruptive events on the demand side of the supply chain, you're going to yeah. get it right sometime, but you're not going to be reliable in building a, a capability to get patients on time in full. So in the work that you've done, I mean, what would you say are the three big takeaway value points? I mean, you worked with a big industrial company uh, who you probably put them at the top of the pops in terms of their supply chain logistics capabilities. What are the big three takeaways that are compelling for the leaders in these companies to think about segmentation? Look, I, I, my view is that, that if, if, you, if you do uh, adopt, uh, and, and segmentation, by the way, is not, we're not talking here about institutional segmentation or um, industry sector segmentation or segmentation by who's the most profitable or who's the biggest, because that language is all our language in the way we describe customers. What we've and and I'm glad, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I'm glad that you make that point. And I, and I want to just emphasize that often yeah. when I talk to consultants and leaders about segmentation, oh, no, we've heard it. We've done segmentation. It's institutional. So yeah. the point you're making is extremely important. It's segmentation by way of the outside-in analysis of demand. And yeah. how the business operating model is going to respond to those different uh, behaviours that drive demand, and that's a f I'm glad you called that out. Yeah, I mean, when, when we did when we did the work, uh, and we did it all over the world in all sorts of markets uh, for that industrial company that you're referring to, uh, they had uh, different levels of distributors, wholesalers, retailers. Um, they had an emerging market with uh, uh, major contractors uh, for, for projects. Uh, they had uh, panel, uh, panel um, uh, manufacturers who used to take a lot of their product. They had uh, a bunch of, of, of different, what we call institutional segments. And what we showed to them, and it was, it was like a blinding glimpse of the obvious when, it, when it, we showed it to them, that inside each of those, it didn't matter whether it was a wholesale group or the retail group, inside each of those, there were four or five behavioural segments. In other words, that not all wholesalers are the same. There's some are some are loyal, some are looking at uh, uh, low cost reliability, some are looking at making the, the manufacturer stop the product and, and getting quick response, you know, so on. So, so this was the big uh, sort of breakthrough for them that they realised that you've got to go to the next level down, the low segment uh, institutions. To, to understand what the grouping of outside-in expectations are of customers. So that was the first thing. Now, once you do that, that is the frame of reference for everything you do, Roddy, because that once you know that you've got these four or five behavioural segments and you know what the characteristics are, that tells you 
basically step by step what sort of operational strategies you need um, and what sort of internal organization structure and different subcultures you need because when you get down to the cultural question what you've actually got to do is create subcultures inside your business that mirror the subcultures that you see in the marketplace and when we talk about subcultures in the marketplace we're actually talking about behavioral segmentation right. that's just enough. it's the external culture is what of the customer is what we call behavioral segmentation and what we're trying to do is match and group people inside the business to mirror what we're seeing on the outside and then connect them with processes and technologies and things and get that alignment so that's the key thing because quite frankly between the 19 i don't know 70s 80s 90s and 2000s there were so many change and transformation projects done but they're all a disaster and the reason was it wasn't that the strategies were, were, were no good it was that the internal uh, cultural capabilities and uh, were just not aligned with the strategies that were being uh, uh, pushed into the marketplace. So people were resisting, uh, you know, doing the right thing, and it was creating all sorts of problems. So not only are there problems on the outside, but you get a lot of problems on the inside of the business. And the only way to to uh, get to the bottom of this is keep looking back at your marketplace and then looking inside what you're doing and testing what you're doing inside against the marketplace all the time. And, and you know, John, your book, Dynamic Supply Chain Alignment, is it's certainly not bedside reading, right? But it is absolutely a good, a good <laughs> reference work. Exactly. It's a really good reference work that any supply chain leader uh, should go through. So let's get that's to the... That's the better one now. That's the short one, Roddy. So, you, you know, you like that one. Right. So, so the last question that I want to tee up, and that is, you know, when do you do segmentation? And I'm really aiming at debunking that you do segmentation once a year, and then you put it in the drawer like a supply chain risk management strategy, and you lead it. Your, your segmentation analysis is something that you continually need to do and adapt the supply and uh, supply uh, your design of your supply chain, because those behaviors will change as products mature, as events take place in the marketplace. So, you know, talk to the fact that uh, it's a continual analysis process and it's something that is not a one-time event. Yeah. Look, the, the, the interesting thing about this is that, uh, uh, and this is why I don't particularly like programs like NPS and that, because it, they, they, they just measure what people's opinions are at a point in time. What, and you can't design supply chain networks and spend hundreds of millions of dollars on new infrastructure, you know, based on some opinion that might change next week. What, when we do behavioral segmentation, we're actually getting to the fundamental expectations that customers have that are driven by their values, which they are hardwired with, right? So, that when you know you, if you think about yourself, you're when you go to buy a car, you've got certain values, and you know, or uh, when you go to buy uh, breakfast cereal, you, you might be a person that likes the branded products and not the you know the best the, 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 the stuff that's on on deals. Uh, we're all hardwired, and and once you do the behavioural segmentation for the first time, it gets you about eighty percent there, in a sense that. After that, the, the, the actual 
if you, you monitor your market and how well you're servicing them, you, you don't find that, that customers' expectations change much. And, and the only reason that they change a lot is that you get a change in um, uh, a CEO in a company, say, in a business-to-business -business environment. Now, that may completely change the buying behaviour of a particular company. I, mean, I remember, you know, uh, working with DHL years ago and they had a big contract with um, uh, one of the banks and doing their global work and mail room and everything else. And then uh, there was a new CEO came in. And so that was a loyal, that was a type of loyal relationship that went, was going very well. But then some, something changed in the dynamics of the, of the buying group inside the bank. And the new CEO said, no, I'm gonna put that out to tender. So immediately the, the buying behaviors changed. So on the one hand, individual uh, values and, and expectations don't change. But the situation we find ourselves in can force us to change for short periods. And on top of that, there will be permanent change when there's change of personnel in the buying company. So that's why having done it once and with the industrial company that we, we all love, that we talk about, uh, they, they've now, we, we've given them the templates and tools and they just keep going around the world and just, you know, Every couple of years, they, they, they cycle around to the, the markets and take another look at them to see if there's been any shifts. The same buying behaviours will be there, but the mix of those buying behaviours may change a little bit uh, over time because of the movement of personnel. Fantastic. So, John, as we close off, uh, you know, I just want to say what a pleasure it's been to have you. What What's the one thing? closing thought that you would leave everybody with that listens to this about you know you have to think of segmentation from the outside in because of dot 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 because it is the fundamental frame of reference for everything else that you do in your business right and so in other words you can't be agile and resilient and responsive if you have no idea what models are driving people's behaviors it's a crapshoot you can't because everything we've done for the last 50 years has been guesswork because right. what we've, done, we've sat inside the business, looked outside, uh, inside out, taken a view of what we think our customers are telling us because we're not doing the right sort of uh, segmentation. And then we've gone back inside our company and spent a fortune doing stuff. And then we look up and we find it's not making any difference. So that's why we need the direct link with our customer, which is, trying to understand what their expectations are and then interpret it back from there. Right, fantastic. Well, as, as we know in the pharmaceutical industry that has 85% margins, their way of responding to that is, well, just have 300 days worth of inventory, then you don't have to segment, right? And that we all know that that won't work in the future. Not when you get products that are going to be worth two or $300,000, you know, all exactly. fancy cancer treatments and things of that nature. Exactly. So, John, thank you very much for your insights. We really appreciate it. It's been an absolute pleasure having you. And I really think that segmentation, yes, in other industries, it was always, I, I don't want to call it common sense, but people just didn't think about it. But the day has dawned for demand-driven segmentation in healthcare. And I really look forward to you helping this industry look at their segmentation in a different way. So thank you for making this time. Thanks, Roddy. My pleasure.